Tonight is about Foundations for a Thoughtful Judaism, a curriculum put together by the Shalom Hartman Institute, which is a think tank that is all about religious pluralism in Israel and the United States. It's all about liberal democracy in Israel and the United States, supporting those things, a liberal Zionist idea of democracy and a Jewish state, those two things being together. Uh, and here, uh, Shalom Hartman North America is all about really supporting Jewish pluralism um, and the ways that we can be thinking as a Jewish community um, rooted in our texts and in our wisdom tradition in a way that helps us meet the moment, whatever that moment is, whatever the opportunity or crisis du jour is, how do we meet that from a place of being rooted in the thinking of our people that goes back millennia? Before we go there, before we get there to the foundation's curriculum, um, I want to take a moment just because we have the opportunity and I said it in my email to you. I want to just take the opportunity to debrief a little bit about my recent trip to Israel because I know everyone's watching the news and everyone is like deeply that I'm talking to is deeply concerned about what's going on. And I just thought I would give you a little bit of my perspective from having come back. Um, and we're going to look at just a few uh, paragraphs of Yossi Klein Halevi's article that I gave you. Um, it's a 10-page article, so we're not going to we're not going to do all of that. But I do want to highlight a few things that he has to say. So first of all, don't look at it yet, you Jews. Oh my God, um, the people at home can't. There is some benefits to having Zoomers. Um, not, I'm not going to lie; like they can't look at it because I haven't given it to them yet. Right now in Israel. Um, when I landed, I just got back on Wednesday, and I was there for 10 days, so whatever that is, like, count back from that. Um, because I was at Hartman, you know I'm starting studying in the Rabbinic Leadership Institute, um, and I will be a senior fellow of the Hartman Institute after July, because I'm in what I say is the seventh year of a three-year program. Um, so because of COVID and whatever, it's been a four-year program. I finish in July, uh, but it means I was there. Uh, I go every uh, January and July to study at Hartman. And so um, being there in this think tank in the midst of like what is just a shock to the liberal Israeli system um, felt a lot like what it felt like for political liberals. And I want to be clear about the distinction. Liberal Zionism is different from political liberalism that we talk about in this country, conservatives and liberals. So here I'm talking about liberal Zionists in Israel, um, people who want a liberal democracy, even a secular liberal democracy in Israel. Um, they, they were in the same kind of shock that a certain uh, part of conservative over to liberal in our country were in after Trump was elected. And then after the initial things started coming about, who was being appointed to what, what was the agenda, it was starting to be moved forward. Um, and a lot of us panicked and were in shock and disbelief, grieving, afraid. Um, I'll never forget my daughter's face the next morning, because of course the election was not decided that night. When she woke up the next day and heard what had happened, I will never forget for the rest of my life the look on my daughter's face. She understood, like didn't, but understood what had just happened for her and at least the next four years of her generation. And if you look at the Supreme Court, way past the next four years. She knew what it meant. 
So um, I was in Israel and I was like, wow, like I and I didn't think about that until I got to Israel. And we were all curious about. So how are you all holding this? What's happening? And I was surprised that like Hartman wasn't obsessed with talking about it. Like our teachers did not come into the room and say, OK, we're going to talk about the matzav, which in Hebrew is code for what the heck is going on. Matzav means situation. And usually that refers to the Israeli-Palestinian matzav. Like, what's the matzav? What's the situation? Um, and for the first time, I felt like that was not the matzav that people were really obsessed with and concerned about. And I thought, it's very interesting that our teachers did not come into the room and start talking about the matzav. They talked about the shiur. They talked about the lesson that was planned for us for that day. And I was just like, <laughs> like it was head-scratching and going, are they in denial? Are they numbed out? <laughs> like, what's happening? But some somehow towards the end of every shiur or every lesson, they would come to kind of a, somebody would ask a question that kind of tangentially from the material we were studying got us around to, so what do you think about the matzav? And so I want to share with you uh, from my teachers, it was really interesting to see how different it was from mine and the people around me's reaction to our situation was that there was a certain calm about it. There was a deep grief and very much concern, very much a commitment to this cannot be the future of Israel. It won't be the future of Israel. We can't let it be. But there was a a deep calm that I thought, huh, Here's one of the major cultural differences that you don't get when you watch the news. You have to be there to really take into your pores. And that is, Israel has seen so much stuff that this, it's not five countries attacking at the same time from every direction. It's not nuclear war. It's not Iran. And it was just like, oh, right. Like, there just is a different existential approach, I think, or that was my impression, to to everything that happens in Israel that we just don't have here. Um, so Micha Goodman, for example, who wrote Catch 67, he's he's not to the you know left. He's you know center left. And and he said, like Micha does, I try, I try, I try to hold, I try to hold all of this, the whole thing, all of this. I try to hold it with curiosity. I choose to hold it with curiosity. He said, because being panicked, being in fear, being reactionary, none of that helps. And it's like, oh, that's so rational. <laughs> like That's so thoughtful. Like, but he was, he was being sincere about, he knew that any other reaction other than curiosity was not going to help him or the people around him be able to move the conversation or the actions forward. So that was Micha. Doniel Hartman, at the end of his lecture, when we somebody asked a question that somehow got it around to the Matzav, said uh, he's you know the head of the institution, the son of David Hartman, a blessed memory who founded the institution. Doniel Hartman said, what we need to build is a coalition of the horrified. And I thought, that just makes so much sense. Like rather than just living in being horrified, He's like, we need to build a coalition of the horrified. And that means we can put a lot of other things aside. But anybody who's horrified by this can join this coalition. 
We just need the emblem, the flag, and raise it, right? Hoist it, and anyone who's horrified can join this coalition because that's what we have to do. That's what has to happen next is a coalition of the horrified. Um, so we, we talked with Yehuda Kurtzer, who's uh, president of uh, Shalom Hartman North America. And, you know, all of these people are deeply thoughtful people. And Kurtzer said, yep, we've seen this. <laughs> like we, we've been through this. Um, we've, as Americans, we have what to share with our Israeli, um, you know, colleagues, our Israeli friends, our Israeli strangers that we don't even know. We have what to bring to the table as Americans who have been through some of this. And, and that's important to remember too, you know, that we do have a perspective that's, you know, we've been through for some of us what was really, um, shocking and, and frightening times. So the folks in Israel are getting their heads around it. Um, what it, those of you who don't know what's happening, it's fine. I've given you Yossi Klein Halevi's laying out of what he sees as the, you know, the reasons this government is so terrifying. So if you don't know why it is, that's fine. I'm not trying to read you out of the conversation. It's right there in front of you. Take it home, read it, study it. Those of us who do know and are terrified, take it home, read it, study it, because he has a lot to say, I think. And he's a centrist. He's definitely a centrist. He's not a leftist. He's not a liberal in that sense. He's a liberal Zionist, but he's not a liberal in the way that we would talk about it in this country. He's definitely a centrist. Um, maybe on some things, even central right. Um, what I want to also say is um, this article helped me kind of categorize the different areas that are under threat. And I feel like we need to do a better job of doing that in our discourse in America. Like to really lay out as clearly as someone like Klein Halevi does, kind of what is going on and in what areas and then what does that mean in terms of the existential challenge? Like obviously January 6th was a challenge to democratic, you know, process. Duh. Newsflash from the Department of Duh. What's, what's, you know, like I, I, I would love a concise, like kind of like Yossi Klein Halevi article on how we can kind of get our hearts and minds around that um, as as Americans dealing with the same issue in our country. Um, so if you don't know what the issues are, he lays them out really well. If you know what the issues are, you know to be really nervous. Um, I'm very nervous for the world community's reaction to this. Very nervous. What I want to say, though, is that um, we have a WhatsApp group for our uh, Hartman uh, cohort, and I got here, like I said, on Wednesday, Saturday night, right after Shabbos, which was Saturday morning for us here. Okay, I was looking at my phone on Shabbos. Don't tell anybody. Um, my colleagues in Israel were posting 80,000 people were in the streets demonstrating against this government in Israel. Rainbow flags everywhere, flags that said democracy in Israel everywhere. Um, 80,000 people in a country that's the size of the state of Vermont. Think about what 80,000 people here in California, it's about the same size. Israel's about the same size as California. Like 80,000 people demonstrating here what that would mean for us and what that would register with, right? If, if, there were, if our national government were just here in California, what would that say to the White House if 80,000 people turned out in California to demonstrate against the policies and what's going on um, with the government? So you don't hear that. I'm a little concerned about that, that we don't hear that anywhere. We don't see those images. We're not seeing that. We see Tiananmen Square when that happens. 
But we don't see, and we see it in Iran, thank God, right, it's happening in Iran, we're not seeing coverage of 80,000 Israelis protesting this government. And so where are you going to hear that? How do you know that? Like, And so I'm a little concerned about what the media is doing, which I'm always a little concerned about when it comes to Israel. Um, so um, unless there's anything else, then if anyone has something they want to say before we go on, I just want to look at a couple of paragraphs of Yossi Klein Halevi. Um, and, and whenever I'm talking about this and reading about this right now, I do kind of feel like we're talking about, in some ways, America too. You know, it gets this, and we know this, it's everywhere. It's not just Israel and America. We know that it's happening everywhere, that authoritarianism is on the rise, democracy is under threat, um, in a lot of places. So, um, I want to look at page four, the meaning of Israel's democracy, where it says, Israeli democracy is a miracle. No other democracy has faced the kind of relentless threats as Israel, moving from war to terrorism, diplomatic isolation, and economic boycott, sometimes successfully, sometimes less so. Israel has maintained a balancing act between security needs and democratic norms, even as it absorbed one wave after another of traumatized refugees from countries with no democratic traditions. Other societies would have long since broken under the strain, Yet our democratic institutions and ethos have held. True, Israel's not a paragon of democracy, a nation under permanent siege and caught in a long-term occupation with no safe way out can't possibly be an objective democratic model. But Israel is a paragon of the struggle for democracy within near impossible conditions, a laboratory for testing the strength and limits of democracy under extremity. Far-left anti-Zionists despise Israel's struggle as a whitewashing of its sins, dismissing the relevance of the context in which Israel must navigate. Far-right hyper-Zionists likewise despise the balancing act between security and democratic norms. I think we're dealing with a similar kind of thing in our country, um, but uh, drop down to page five, the visions uh, of a Jewish state. And yet the Netanyahu government is hardly invulnerable. Polls since the election, this is hopeful for me, show growing unease among a substantial minority of Netanyahu voters. According to one poll, 61% of Israelis, and crucially, 40% of those who voted for coalition parties, are worried for the future of Israel's democracy. I think that is something we need to say uh, far and wide when people say, how could this government be elected? A lot of folks, I mean, it was a, it was a half the country, and now we have folks who are very clearly worried, even ones who voted for parties who are sitting in Netanyahu's government. Um, if you go to page seven, this election exposed two opposing visions of a Jewish state. For the ultra-Orthodox and the ultra-nationalists, Israel is the state of Judaism. Orthodox Judaism. For classical Zionism, though, Israel was intended to be the state of the Jewish people without imposing a uniform notion of authentic Jewish identity. The difference is crucial. A state of Judaism is bound by pre-modern norms defining membership in the Jewish people and upholds traditional standards for whom we as a people should be. The state of the Jewish people, on the other hand, accepts the Jews as they are. This is the critical fight, both on the right and the left. For the right that's, you know, about 
ultra-religiosity and the other side that's about ultra-nationalism, right? It's about the, the Jewish state and the Jewish state only. About Judaism being about the the definition of what the state is about um, and the other is the state of the Jewish people, which means the state that the Jewish people in their current configuration, um, what they decide uh, is what the state needs to be about. So we're going to go to page nine. In the last year, the Israeli roller coaster has taken an especially wild turn. We've gone from an astonishing, an astonishingly diverse coalition that modeled Israel's ability to transcend its divisions to our most uniform and intolerant government. This is another thing I want you to spread far and wide. As horrifying as this is, only not so long ago, it was a coalition that included, for the first time, an Arab party. It was the most diverse coalition that had ever been elected to office in Israel. That just happened. You turn around, you wake up the next morning in Israel, and life is different. What these last 40 years have taught me, says Klein Halevi, is to never freeze the frame and conclude this is Israel. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Israeli reality is invariably fluid. Just when you think you understand the country, along comes a massive and unexpected wave of immigration, a war on one of our borders, a diplomatic breakthrough with the Arab world. That's what life is like there. Existential changes when they wake up in the morning. And I think that's one of the reasons there was an equilibrium in Israel that we didn't feel here. We're not used to those kinds of like catastrophic existential swings that they're just used to in a different way uh, living with existential threat constantly uh, in Israel. And I, I don't say that as an excuse. I just say it as a as a point of curiosity, as Micha would say. Page 10, last page. Diaspora Jews are facing their own moment of truth. Some Jews whose connection to Israel has been wavering will be further alienated. Some may give up on the relationship altogether. But when someone you love is in danger, you draw closer, even if the threat is self-inflicted. A very powerful call from many Israelis to us. Yeah, you can dismiss us. You can say goodbye. And I was already not so sure, um, but now I'm done. But when someone you love is in trouble, even if they did it to themselves, you draw closer. So coming uh, down to this uh, last two paragraphs. Liberal diaspora Jews need to seek out centrist Zionist forces in Israel that are determined to save our democracy, maintain Israel's heroic struggle for moral balance in adversity. We need diaspora Jews as partners in that struggle. Those who love Israel, who know a third destruction of Jewish sovereignty would be a decisive blow from which we as a people may not recover, are unconditionally committed to playing out this story. That's what I bring you um, from liberal Zionists in Israel is they want you to draw close because they're in trouble and they feel it and they know it and they need us to draw close um, and they need us to believe in the project and they need us to fund and 
and give our ideas to and our support to in any ways we can um, those institutions that will make Israel um, the kind of place that we all know it can be um, because I think he's right and I didn't really think of it in this in these existentially huge terms but the Jewish people losing sovereignty again it just I agree with him I don't think it's something we'll recover from we it's too big for us to not weigh in and not make our voices heard and not lean in where we can. So anyone who wants to further the conversation, anyone who wants to have a conversation with me, anybody who wants to get together and we'll start a coffee clatch, like whatever, who just needs to process, I get it, I get it's fraught, I feel the same pain you do, they do too over there. Like when people looked at us and said, what the heck is going on in America? You know, what did we say? Well, screw America, it's a mess, I'm out. No, right? We said, I'm a patriot. And being a patriot means I'm going to fight for this place. I'm going to fight as hard as I can in whatever ways I can to make this the country I know it can be if she lives up to her values and her founding ideals as articulated in so many amazing places. And that's what I feel like we're being asked by you know liberal Zionists in Israel to do is, is lean in wherever you feel you can to contributing to the the building of the Israel that you want to see. That's what they want from us. They're asking that from us. Um, and so that's what I want to offer you from having just been in Israel. And uh, for those of you who um, have questions or comments, um, I'm thrilled for you to reach out to me about that. All right. Anything you want to say in here? Stephen Lewis. Um, so we we can't be part of the eighty thousand, which, by the way, I did see on CNN. So somebody oh, somebody glad, is covering it. Um, since we can't be part of the eighty thousand, how do we have our voices heard yeah. as American Jews yeah. when so much of what they're even saying even negates us being Jewish? Yeah. Um, so a we ignore what they say about we're not Jewish because that's garbage, right? It's BS. Um, we are Jewish. Um, and they know that. Um, so it, it's about, who, like, where do we know? So uh looks like the mic wasn't getting to y'all at home. So the question is that Stephen Lewis asked is, um, your incoming president, um, uh, and our president is here as well, Larry Cross, uh, but our incoming president asked the question, like, ha, ha, we're, we're not part of the 80,000. We can't take to the streets. They don't even recognize some of us as Jews. What are we supposed to do? A, we don't accept we're not Jews. We are Jews, and most even still, most of the definitions would include everyone here who could make Aliyah tomorrow afternoon if they wanted to. Um, so that's garbage. Um, how do we make our voices heard? It's about figuring out, like, so w- what are the organizations, the institutions, the, 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 the people who are doing the work that you feel for you are, you know, are organizations that support the Israel that you want to see happen. Definitely making your voice heard wherever there's opportunities for an, you know, when there's a, an opinion that you can just type in your comments, you know, that, that we call our senators, that we call our congresspeople, whenever they support Israel, you know, the kind of Israel that we want to see and the policies that we want to see, we need to reinforce it wherever we see it happening. Um, and, and just if you have Israeli friends to say, we're here, we get it, we're with you, right? And to just not accept whatever you hear, whatever the talk is on the street. We don't accept it. Like Klein Halevi said, you can wake up tomorrow morning and it's a different Israel. So do not do a snapshot and say, this is Israel. You don't get to do that. Nobody gets to do that. Um, and so just to kind of challenge the narrative, you know, that 
I, I just think it's so important for us to own the conversation and not go, oh, I know it's complicated, right? And so we're not part of the 80,000, but we're part of the thousands here who who can stand up proudly and say, I'm a liberal Zionist, and you don't get to characterize this government of Israel as permanent and who she is really any more than we get to say whatever period of our history, right, is who we are permanently as America. You know, like, you know just wherever you can. Wherever and however you can. All right. So FTJ, people, FTJ. Why? Why are we doing this? So, um, if you haven't seen my Rosh Hashanah sermon, we're gonna send it out. We're gonna send out the link. Because um, if you're like, why, why did you do that class? Um, when I talked at Rosh Hashanah, one of the things I talked about was again having been at Hartman for the summer, and what Hartman talked about was that we have become so immersed in our political identities in this country, that that really is, for most Americans, their primary identity, Democrat or Republican. You have some independence, that, that's fine, but that's an identity too. Um, but really, our identities have become politicized to the point where we don't have a lot of other parts of us that interact with other people in the world, that interact with ideas, that interact with policy suggestions, that interact with how we see the news and how we take that in and how we respond. We really have become political people. The, the challenge of that, of course, is that we live in what Micha Goodman calls the unintended consequences of the technical revolution, which is polarization. The unintended consequence of the industrial revolution is climate change. We have all these machines. It's going to make your life easier. It's going to be great. You don't have to like do this and do this and do this and do this because we're going to have machines that do that. You don't have to have horses and it's so slow. We're going to have cars. We're going to have trains. We're going to have planes and automobiles and all that stuff. It's going to be great. It's going to make life easier and better. What happened? An unintended consequence of that? is that we're destroying the planet that we live on that we want life to be easier on, right? It's an unintended con- consequence. So he says, Michael Goodman says, that polarization is the same thing, but the result of the technical revolution. So with the advanced technology of the phones that you're holding in your hands, the computers that are sitting in front of you, your tablets, your iPads, your screens, your YouTube that's on your TV, that's on every device you have, what has happened is in order what what was assumed to be a way we were all going to be connected and information would now be shared globally and everybody would know the truth because all the facts would be out there everything would be clear everything would be everyone could see everything and everybody would know and people in places that never had that before the light would be shown in those dark corners of the world and the humanity would come together around truth yeah That didn't happen so much, right? What happened was an unintended consequence, which were algorithms that got developed. And we know this, of course, from the Facebook leak. I know you all know this. I'm just going to say it. But from the Facebook leak, we know that, of course, the algorithms now send you things that all they care about is that you put your eyes on it. And better than that, respond to it with a like Respond thumbs down, respond how dare you, whatever you respond, advertisers know they've got your attention. That's money for, as we know, whoever's in charge of that uh, 
that platform. So the algorithms now push stuff to you to get your attention. So they know what you're watching. They know what you're listening to. So they push you the next thing that's going to push you to the next limit, which means it filters out a bunch of other stuff. So we are now living in echo chambers. We are living in bubbles. What used to be a mirror to us has now broken into shards, right? There were things that used to mirror to us reality. When you used to watch the news when I was a kid, which was like getting longer and longer and longer ago. But when I watched the news as a kid, there was an authority on the television. And what the television on ABC News, Peter Jennings, showed you, Walter Cronkite, yes, I do remember Walter Cronkite, would show you, media showed you a mirror of your world. Do you remember that? Well, you're too young, Sydney. Don't even try. Um, yeah, you too, Mayim. Don't even try. Um, we used to sit down and look at media that we consumed to reflect the world, like kind of as we understood it. I'm not saying it was accurate, but but it was a mirror of our reality. That mirror, someone took a brick and unintentionally shattered that mirror, and now we're living in the shards. Now when we turn on media, we get like a shard, and that's all that's reflected back to us of our reality. So we don't see the rest of the shards. And so it just amplifies one position. So this is the danger of our time, and given that now those realities that we experience are really filtered through the lens of of politics and our political identities, it means we're losing a richness and a thickness of identity that is the only corrective a lot of us can think of to the problem we're in. It's an unintended consequence. So people are going to have to throw, we're going to have to throw everything we've got at climate change. But we also have to throw everything we've got at the unintended consequences of the technological revolution, which is polarization. This class is a laboratory to try to start seeing if we can do some of that here. So the same way that we don't know if we can clean up the ocean, but let's take this thing and put it on this thing of plastic and let's see if that eats it up and let's see if that dissolves. But right, okay, so that worked, yay! That didn't work, oh, we have to try something else, right? But that's what this is, a laboratory for us to see if we can't start pushing against the forces of polarization. How do we do that? We do that by coming back to our tradition and we start to expand our identity as Jews, people rooted in the wisdom of our tradition and the way our tradition has approached every single challenge it's ever faced. We are two millennia old. What we have is records. We are four millennia old in terms of folks who've been telling stories and telling the same stories and digging into them and figuring out what the heck that means. So we are inheritors of a 4,000-year-old tradition, 2,000 of which we have a lot of record for. So Foundations for Thoughtful Judaism is Hartman's way of trying to say, how do we deepen our Jewish identity and how do we bring that to bear on um, everything we deal with today as modern humans? Take out your first sheet that is the Hartman sheet. The first one that's about Hartman and not the Yossi Klein Halevi piece should be the first piece of your texts. Um, Y'all at home don't have this. It's okay. I'm going to read it out loud. You're going to have the sources. Tell me what page it says at the bottom. Five. Okay. All right. Page five. 
This is from the teacher's manual. Um, for And you can see how big it is, um, right? <laughs> the student source book is this big. <laughs> yeah, of course, here's the teacher's version. Okay, so page five. I gave you page five because I wanted you to see what what it sells itself to us to be, this Hartman curriculum, and what it's telling teachers it is. Um, and it says, as a leading center of Jewish thought and education, the Shalom Hartman Institute is committed to strengthening Jewish identity and ensuring that Judaism is a compelling force for good in the 21st century. That's really where we can stop, right? We want Judaism to be a compelling force for good in the 21st century, but that means we need to use it. And that means we need to grip the tools and learn how to use them for it to be a force for good in the world in the 21st century. Um, so go down to Judaism as an interpretive tradition. In Foundations, we present the way Jews have taken the sacred texts of our tradition and made them their own, further shaping the tradition and passing it along to the generations that followed. We draw upon biblical texts and regularly show how the rabbis and later commentators understood themselves to be empowered to interpret and provide meaning with these texts. We hope that the participants will feel as if they too are taking part in these conversations through their study. That's the goal. We want you, I want you, I want to feel like we're participating in a 2,000-year-old, 4,000-year-old conversation that helps inform everything we're talking about now by delving into um, this study. Pluralism. Many voices have come to shape the varieties of Judaism today. Like the heritage it reflects, foundations is not dogmatic. Instead, it brings together the many voices of the tradition to conversations about life's big questions and dilemmas. By exploring varied responses, foundations foundations remains faithful to the plurality of approaches found in Jewish thought on any given issue. That's the goal. Also to lift up pluralism. If you disagree with anything I say, if you disagree with the text, that is the basis of Jewish learning. The Talmud. Have you seen a page of Talmud? Have you seen a book of Talmud? It's about this big. It's about this big. You open it up, and it's this big. So each a page of Talmud, a daf of Talmud. Talmud, what is Talmud? Talmud is the Mishnah, Jewish law in the center, and generations of arguing about the meaning of that law and the interpretation of that law around the margins. That's what Talmud is. Talmud is a collection, a codification of arguing. It is the only sport Jews are naturally good at debate. That is what we're here to do, to lovingly engage with our tradition and its ideas. So anytime you want to disagree, please raise your hand because that is what makes a rabbi most happy. Uh, You know, I went to Jewish day school and then yeshiva high school. And um, the most credit we ever got in a class is if we raised our hands and we stumped the rabbi. If we stumped the rabbi, like we were the star student of the day. And the rabbi said, I will get back to you, Rachel, tomorrow with an answer to that question. And that meant I was the highest level possible. So in the academy, in the yeshiva, after the fall of the temple, that's what dominated was the academy, the Babylonian academy. So before the fall of the temple, the academy already existed. The academies were in Babylonia, Pumba, uh, uh, and Pumbadita and I forget the other one. So the, the major academies in Babylonia, and they were the place where the Mishnah was discussed and argued about. And if you think about Greece, you think about Platonic and, and all of the different kinds of ways of engaging students and engaging thought. 
Uh, in Babylonia, it was that you had someone teaching, you had the Mishnah, and then you had arguments around that. And if you were the star student because you stumped the rabbi, or you had a question that like blew everything out of the water, or had an argument that completely decimated what the teacher was saying, you got to move forward a row. You got to move. What if her, What if our education system was designed this way. Could you imagine? Um, so we're going to read something, and, and it's going to matter to you to know that you moved forward, um, and if you were in the first row, it meant you got there because you earned it by challenging what was said, by having an argument against what was being said that was respectful, that came out of knowledge of the tradition, that said, I challenge that on these grounds. Um, and that got you moved to the front of the class. Okay, so we're going to look at this this um, rooted in text, the idea that Judaism is a uh, interpretive tradition. Um, and so we're going to go to text number one, your source number one. All right. So what we're looking at here um, is Tana de de, de Be'eliahu, and this is a 10th century commentary. And uh, it is uh, written from the point of view of Elijah, the prophet. And it, it tracks from the beginning of creation, the beginning of creation to the Messianic age. Okay, so that's, that's all. Just the beginning of creation to the end of the Messianic age. Okay, so let's look at page 19, uh, your source number one. Elijah said, once I was walking along a road, a man accosted me. He came at me aggressively with the sort of argument that leads to, God forbid, heresy. It turned out that the man had scripture, but no Mishnah. So what does that mean? Scripture, meaning Torah, the written Torah, but no Mishnah, no rabbinic interpretation of what Torah means, right? Mishnah is the book of codification of Jewish law, but already that had to be gleaned from the Torah text, right? The rabbis had to take the Torah text and figure out what that means, um, whatever the law is they're talking about from the Torah. So Mishnah is the interpretation already of Torah by the rabbis. He asserted, scripture, meaning Torah, was given to us from Mount Sinai, but not Mishnah. So in other words, the Constitution was given by the founding parents of this country, but not what y'all derive from that as the right to privacy means a woman has a right, right to control her reproduction because it's between her and her doctor, Right? Only what the Constitution says. Nothing past there. Anything y'all came up with from that? Where am I? Uh, no, no, no. I replied, my son, were not both scripture and Mishnah given by the Almighty? Does the fact that they are different from each other mean that both cannot have been given by God? They offered a parable to elucidate this point. First of all, who's they? But okay, whatever. Um, what is this like? Like a mortal king who had two servants, both of whom he loved completely. To one, he gave a measure of wheat, and to the other, he gave a measure of wheat. To one, a bundle of flax, and to the other, a bundle of flax. What did the clever one of the two do? He took the flax and wove it into a cloth. He took the wheat and made it into fine flour by sifting the grain and grinding it. Then he kneaded the dough and baked it set the loaf of bread on the table, spread the cloth over the bread, and left it to await the coming of the king. But the foolish one of the two did not do anything at all. After a time, the king came home and said to the two servants, My sons, bring me what I, ha 
what I gave you. One brought out the loaf of bread baked of fine flour and with the cloth spread over the bread. The other brought out his wheat in a basket with a bundle of flax over the wheat grains. What a shame. What a disgrace. So too, when the Holy One gave the Torah to Israel, God gave it as wheat to be turned into fine flour and as flax to be turned into garments. Okay? What do y'all make of that? What's the saying? This is a rabbinic position to support the fact that not only words of Torah were given at Sinai, not only uh, the word uh, of God is found in the words actually of Torah, but in the words of interpretation. Bert? That it's a partnership and that we have something to add and our engagement with Torah and engagement with that is valid, important, critical, must be, and that this too is given by God. If God what, didn't what, want what us to have... This too is given by God. What do you mean by this too? The, the ability to reason, the ability to think. If God didn't want us to have free will, if God didn't want us to think, going back to the Garden of Eden, then God could have just made us like animals, just automatons. But we were not made that way. So, but the ability to think, so I hear you, that the ability to think is God-given, and therefore, like, you could say, well, duh, like, then we're going to take this and run with it. There are people who say, we were given the ability to think, and that means we're given the ability to decide that we accept fundamentally the word of God and don't move from there, right? So it's a very different position to say we're given a brain and a mind and an inclination to ask and question and interpret and extrapolate and so on. And that is a divine desire for us. And even if you don't accept the Torah as divine, you don't have to. Like this, this, this is the language of the rabbis. What I'm saying is what we're doing here is we're rooting ourselves in the tradition so that you know that 2,000 years ago, this is what they're writing. These are the rabbis who are saying... The words of Torah given to us as wheat were meant to be turned into fine flour from which we bake. Amazing yumminess. That's the point of giving us wheat. The king, the queen, wants us to take that raw material and make something beautiful of it. It was never meant to just be words in a book. It was never meant to stay there. Chas v'shalom, that would be heresy. Do you see how cheeky and chutzpah the rabbis are? They're challenging the founding fathers. They're challenging the father, the mother, right? Who is seen as the ultimate authority, and that doesn't change. And here's the word, and here's how it's given, and here's the law. The rabbis from this long ago are saying... The whole point of giving it to us is for us to figure out how do we use it now? Do you want to chew on some wheat? Okay. Or would you rather sit down and feed your amazing chevra, your community, your family of choice? Would you rather feed them amazing fine flour turned into pastries? That's our work. That's our job. And the rabbis have understood it that way since this long ago. So anyone who wants to say, oh, but that's not what Judaism, really? Really? Uh, check your sources. Right? Check check how they want us to um, approach those sources. Source number two. 
This is from Talmud. This is from Menachot 29b, meaning the left hand of that huge book when it's opened up. Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav, when Moses ascended on high, he found the Holy Blessed One engaged in adding crowns to the letters of the Torah. Have you seen a Torah scroll? Have you seen the writing in a Torah scroll? There are little crowns on top of the letters. So Moses finds God writing a Torah scroll. Of course. All right. God's writing Torah, because what else would God be doing? God writes Torah. So engaged in God now is adding the crowns to the letters of the Torah. Said Moses, master of the universe, who compels you to do that? Right? Like all you have to do is write the words. Who told you you have to put these fancy little crowns on the top of it? What's up with that? It's like my dog, like looking at me when I'm in the bathtub, like you're the boss. Like who made you get in the bathtub with all that water? And God answered, there will arise a man at the end of many generations, meaning a hero, right? Who's the hero? Akiva ben Yosef. This is Rabbi Akiva by name, who will spin out of each tittle heaps and heaps of laws. Master of the universe, said Moses, permit me to see him. God replied, turn around. Moses went and sat down at the end of the eighth row, the back of the room, and listened to the discourses upon the halacha, upon the law. Not being able to follow their arguments, he was uh, ill at ease, is your English. Um, his strength like fell to the floor. His strength dropped. He was what is happening? I can't follow what's happening. It's my Torah. Like I gave them the Torah. I know the Torah. What the heck are these people talking about? He was like his, his strength just dropped to the floor. But when they came to a certain subject and the disciples said to the teacher, from where do you know this? And the latter replied, it is a law given to Moses at Sinai. Moses was comforted. Talk to me about what's happening here. What are the rabbis saying here? Lori. What they're saying is that even though it seems new, it all comes out of the original kernel of truth. And so the newness of it shouldn't be threatening because it's all tied back to the source. And so that comforted Moses that they haven't discarded him and moved on to something else. All right, so there's just two things you said. One is that the rabbis are saying it didn't come from somewhere else. It actually came from Torah, from Torah Misenai. It actually originates there, so don't worry, right? And but then the second thing you said was that Moses heard what? That it wasn't that it, that it wasn't like he'd been forgotten. It wasn't that Moses and what he was teaching had been forgotten. So two really important things. A, it originated at Sinai. Did it? Does a woman's right to control her own reproduction originate in, what is it again? <laughs> Sorry. Um, the right to privacy? That's the claim. That is a chutzpah claim. Or, or, or not even chutzpah. Like, that's the move. Right? When you're interpreting the Constitution and you want to bring it into our time and you have an agenda, even one against what the founding fathers wanted, what you say is it comes from there. Actually, it comes from the right to privacy. Look it up. You have a copy of the Constitution, you lawyers in front of you, you judges, look it up. It's right there. 
It's in Torah. But really, that's often used to actually overturn or negate what's happening in Torah. So that's number one. The claim is it comes from there. And I'm not saying that's a wrong claim. I'm saying that's already a move to to claim it comes from there. And the other is to say Moshe was comforted that all of the years of interpretation, all the teachings, all the masters before us, all the poets, all the philosophers, all the literature, all that came before us, we're not saying it doesn't matter. We're not saying we didn't hear. We're saying we're, we're moving in a different direction, right? Those are two powerful points, Lori, that you put your finger on, that the, that the Talmud is making, is that we A, need to figure out how much we want to claim it comes from there, whatever it is, whatever move we're making. And the other is that, that we say it's because we're taking a different turn in the road doesn't mean we don't appreciate and don't stand on the shoulders of all of those of us, uh, all of it has come before us. How many of you have children who have made decisions that you weren't sure you were so supportive of? Any of you? Hmm, one or two. The others just aren't raising their hands. Because anybody with adult children, right? It's work for us to get to where Moshe was, right? It's work for us to get to. It's not that they didn't hear us. It's not that they didn't take in our teaching. It's not that they didn't take seriously what their great-grandmother said to them or their grandparents said to them. It's not that they didn't hear. And it doesn't mean it's a negation of all that. It means... I heard you, and for me, what you told me means I need to do this even if you can't see that there's a connection, that there's a through line, right? Because often we think if we take a hard left, it means we're abandoning what came before us or we're in standing in opposition to it, and sometimes we are, and that's okay. We can be honest about that. But what our interpretive tradition is saying is it's a lot more nuanced than that. And our job is to make sure we are listening to our great grandparent who has something to say to us. We don't have to do what they did. We don't have to accept their way of seeing it or their argument or their result or where they got to. If we don't take seriously that wisdom and that inheritance we are making decisions from a much shallower pool of knowledge and experience. And that is a dangerous thing. And as we look around the world at what's happening that feels really dangerous, it's about people making decisions that aren't rooted in a lot of learning from right lots of different sources. Um, and our job is to make sure we're rooting ourselves in the Jewish ones, Bert. At the same time, for a lot of liberal Jews, feel that the idea of interpretation and evolution is something that just came about in Judaism. If I understand you properly, you're demonstrating that this is, in fact, the Jewish tradition. It is not against the Jewish tradition. It is the Jewish tradition and not changing and not being willing to look at new things is not the Jewish tradition. Thank you. I, I could not have said it better myself. Thank you. Exactly right, Bert, that I think part of what I want us to do in this time together and in looking at these sources and to really marinate in, in, in the 
approach of our tradition since way back is exactly what Bert said. We're charged as liberal Jews with changing everything. And it's the traditional Jews who are preserving. And that's just not true. It just, it's the opposite. Bert said it's actually just the opposite. What this text shows us, Moshe is like, whew, okay. He has no idea what they're saying. Do you understand that from this text? Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, the paradigm of Jewish teaching, the Jewish teacher, the Jewish authority, the one who gave us Torah Sinai, Torah from Sinai, comes down to the academy and has no idea what's going on. He has no clue what's happening. But the minute someone says, and how do you know that? From Moshe Rabbeinu, from Sinai. And Moshe goes, he still has no idea what's happening. But notice where Moshe's been seated. Where's Moshe sitting? The eighth row. He's sitting in the back of the room. The students who are at the front are the ones who challenged and said, this is what it means, who evolved the tradition, who evolved the words from Sinai into what meant something for their time, for their community, for their people, for their understanding of truth, for their understanding of good, for their understanding of righteousness, and what it means to meet the moment in the best way possible for us to honor the decency of every human being and create equity and justice. If that means ruling against whatever Moshe wrote down in the Torah, so be it. And Moshe gets it. Okay. As long as it's seen, right, as somehow connected. That's authentic Judaism, not the opposite. You preserve and preserve and preserve and preserve and hand it down as an ossified, stilted, stunted, unmoving thing that is antithetical to Judaism and to the Jewish tradition. Yes, uh, microphone to the question, please. I don't, I don't know if this actually follows what you're saying. In fact, what I was thinking at the time of this, a newer group of people looking at what Moses said and said, um, but what if we looked at it this way and then did this, fine. But for every group that says that, oh no, we we can't do that. What do we do with those people under these circumstances? So um, I've kind of painted it, I hear you saying it's kind of monolithic, like here's what we're going to do and we're going to change from the past, but what about the people in the present who say, I don't want to do what you're saying is actually Torah Misenai that we're actually changing, right? So that's the Talmud, is arguing, saying, no, 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 Linda Scheibel, you're completely wrong. That is exactly not how we're supposed to do it. (laughs) Couldn't be, I know. Um, That's not how we're supposed to do it. We're actually supposed to do it this way. And then there's a whole discussion and an argument that ensues about what's the best way forward. What's the best plan? What's the best policy? What's the best way for the Jewish people to meet whatever the circumstance is that they're addressing? And then it always goes by what? How's the decision made? It always goes by what? Always the majority. It always goes by the majority, and the minority opinion is always recorded. Always. And Roman law about the same time as a lot of this is going on for the Jews, in Roman law, 
You get the code of of Jewish. You get the code of Roman law. You get the the thing. Then you get the a little bit of the argument, and then here's the decision. In Jewish law, the codification of Jewish law. Here's the thing. Here's the argument. Here's more argument. Here's more argument. Here's more argument. Here's the decision. Here's the minority dissenting opinion, and why. Here's the reasoning behind the dissenting opinion. Because the rabbis were wise enough to understand, because they were serious about this business of it evolving, that if it's going to evolve next Thursday, the circumstances could change. And then we may need to understand the minority opinion and all, not just it, but all the reasoning behind it, because we may need to apply that thinking to next Thursday. How far have we come? from people who are ready to have that kind of argument and debate, that I can disagree with you vehemently and say the law needs to go according to me and know that in a couple of years, something could shift. And your opinion and your thinking about it might actually be the right approach for that moment and that circumstance. But how would I know that if I haven't asked you? If I don't know anything about your argument and how you got there, how am I supposed to use that ever as a corrective to the way I'm thinking and the, the stuff that I'm only hearing because there's an algorithm, right, that's exposing me to what I hear. Did you ever hear it up, Lisa? It feels like now it's not that somebody hasn't asked me, but they're listening to me only to tell me why I'm wrong. Right. In other words, they may ask, but it's just for the purpose of explaining how I'm not seeing things right. Right. Um, That's the frustration. This of is the, the frustration. So Lisa's pointing out that the frustration with. is that people aren't listening right now to what you're saying because they want to hear your perspective. It's because they want to tell you how you're wrong and why you're wrong. So we can't really control that ever. We can't control how someone else listens to us or why they ask us a question, right? Once I get involved in that conversation and I know that's what's going on, I'm like, you know what? This is really not fruitful. It's not helpful. And I'm just going to get really aggravated and you really don't want to see that because it's just not pretty. Um, so we can extricate ourselves because it's not going to be productive. What I care more about is what we can control, which is can I listen and can I hold someone else's perspective with a little more curiosity and can I understand how they interpreted, like we started at the same place, let's say the Constitution, like, and we got to these radically different places. How did they get there? How did they get so wrong? <laughs> but what, how did they get there? And what, what the Talmudic approach that we have lived in for those of us who live in that world and are exposed to it really are reminded all the time that it's about how, if, if I know how you got there, I can say, okay, I understand that and I wouldn't have made that left turn, but I understand how Lisa did. And there's got to be a lot of other people like Lisa. So how do we get to the thing before the hard left turn? Like, how do I fix the road before there so that they can keep going? And I'm not saying everyone needs to agree with us or come to our, what I'm saying is we get, we don't gain Understanding until less than until we know how the other side got there and whole and at least have some curiosity about that. Or how are we going to fix what has people going? And, and I do, I'm sorry, I, I should be clear and I should be honest. I do think we're right about some things as people who are liberals. 
Um, and I and I mean that as someone in a liberal democracy. You know, people who are in when we talk about liberalism, we're not talking about a political party. I'm not talking about the political spectrum. Liberalism as you know, individuals lifting up the individual. You know, liberalism, classic liberalism, I believe is the right path, and I believe this country believes that. So if we are a liberal democracy, then. How do we get people to come back from ultranationalism, from racism, from xenophobia, from all the kind of crazy that goes against a liberal democracy's basic fundamental foundational values? So I do believe there's a I do believe I want to pull people to, you know, uh, out of these ruts that they've fallen into off the side of the liberal democracy road. And and I think we can't do that unless and until we hear how that happened for some of them. Dana? Keeping the discussion within the Jewish people, when you describe this, I'm not going to ask this question very well. You'll re-ask it. So you're saying those ultra over there people, and I'm thinking those Orthodox who came into the creation of Israel with the thought of participating and turned out they got all this power I, I don't see them looking at everybody's reasoning and thinking about it. Even, I mean, it doesn't make sense what you're saying because, and I, I, I mean, this is just in regard to the Jewish people. It feels like the Orthodox just don't get it. A quick, I had a conversation with Chabad rabbi. I said, oh, I met, I met a modern, modern Orthodox and it's interesting, you know, you have a lot in common. He says, yes, we have a lot in common, all of us. And I said, well, not all of us. I mean, I have a woman rabbi. And he just darted his eyes away, and I realized, oh, my gosh, there's such a... Divide. Yeah, so what about the Orthodox? Are they, I mean, just to the point, are they ever going to open up and look at our perspective? So for me, are the Orthodox ever going to change? No. Because they are wedded to orthodoxy. Ask a fundamentalist of any stripe. Do they want to change? No. They think we're the ones who are wrong, wanting a liberal democracy. Of course, the orthodox thrive, both in Israel and here, right, under a liberal democracy that that doesn't annihilate them, that lets them get state funding and other things. So they do really well, but they are ideologically opposed to, you know, in Israel it being a, a secular democracy. So um, will they change? No. But that doesn't have to define me. I don't care that they don't change. What, what, what does that matter to me? Would I prefer it? Yeah, but I agree with Bert. They're the ones who have warped the tradition. Because you just saw two texts that are super old about the fact that it is supposed to be interpreted. They're the ones who are going against exactly what the tradition has always taught. That's, that's not my problem. They are an issue I have to deal with, and they're, we're going to have to figure out what to do with that. And in Israel, they are reproducing at a rate that is alarming in terms of what it's going to mean for the state who has to carry the burden of them not working and not serving in the military. It's a real issue. Um, no, Mapitum. Do the Orthodox participate in Hartman? Absolutely not. No. They'll come as a guest speaker to be on the other side of the, you know, of a panel, but that's it. No, absolutely not. Because they're, they're not interested in the project of a think tank that is about how do we build a healthy and robust liberal Zionism. And again, not liberal political, but liberal meaning the ideas of liberalism. They're, they're not interested in that. 
So no, they don't participate in that project. But that's that's not really my concern. It's not my problem. It's not my focus. It's about what we can do and who we are. Judah? The, the, the comment, maybe the question that I have is I've been sitting here listening to this, and I'm going to sort of bring this back to, to the United States. And w- when you look at the, the composition of the Supreme Court right now, you know, I'm looking, specifically thinking of Amy Coney Barrett, right? And, and the, the other conservative justices, they have taken their religious beliefs, their fundamental beliefs, in, in, in their interpretation through Catholicism or through, through, you know, the evangelical movement. And they are applying that hardcore, strict scriptural interpretation, which they think is 100% correct. And they are enforcing that into our society. Yeah. Dobbs decision on and on and on. So h- how do we as liberal Jews Deal with that. How, how do we walk up to a Amy Coney Barrett and and change her opinion or change the rulings that are coming out of the Supreme Court? Yeah, we won't change Amy Coney Barrett. But but, but, I can tell you that right now. But, <laughs> That's but, not the work. But, but she's there. It's a life appointment. That's right. So and, the work and, is to not let that happen again. We fell asleep on the job. Right. The liberal people who want a liberal democracy where religion is kept out of uh, and, and I'll be honest, my religion obviously comes to bear on my voting, um, you know, but when you come to this kind of fundamentalist, you know, stuff, we fell asleep on the job. They played the long game and they won. For now, for now, they won. We did not fight hard enough to make sure it didn't happen. There's a lesson to be learned there, right, is that if you allow the folks who want to say Torah Misenai, Torah is from God, here it is, and we can't veer from that, and that should govern even our secular American justice system, we didn't fight hard enough to make sure that didn't happen. And there are some things we couldn't control. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. But we, I believe we did not take it seriously enough, and we fell asleep on the job. And here's where we are. Now we're dealing with the consequences of that. So now we had better, if you ask me, we'd better motivate and we'd better activate and better support, you know, candidates and movements in this country that we feel will support our rights as liberal Jews, you know, to be full participants in a state where religion is kept out of the the public, yeah, the public sphere, the public space. Um, But all of this kind of reminds me of our own practice as Reconstructionist Jews and just keeping things relevant for us and our communities and our world. But back to the text, what I was thinking about is like Moses, like, and, and I mean, this is probably already said, but I'm just getting it. Like Moses is in the space and he's not automatically placed in the front, as you said, because he has to earn it. And so for me, I, I understand that to be that like tradition doesn't automatically get to go first simply because it's tradition. But instead, he had, like, he didn't understand, like you said, but he had to listen to others. And so, like, I feel like tradition also has to listen to the present and what's going on now and see that, like, you can still coexist, but, like, it's kind of like you had your moment to shine in a way. And there are things that we can take and apply to the future. But, like, just because you get the title of tradition or history doesn't automatically make you correct or purposeful for this moment. Beautifully said. 
and he's in the room. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So right. Yeah. He doesn't get to be in the front row. Because tradition doesn't automatically get to go to the front, yeah. which is a really important point of the text. And he's in the room. Right? Um, so. All right. Uh, let me see. Who's, oh, people have their hands up in the corner. That is, yeah, Alex. Thank you, Rabbi Amy. Um, I guess what I'm concerned about is, or I'm grappling with, is we're, it's the encouragement of looking at multiple perspectives and, and listening. However, when we say we and then they, right, we're already creating uh, a border or a barrier because we're saying that we're not truly a collective because it's we, the liberal Jews, and they, sorry, my dog's barking, they, the fundamentalists, or they, the orthodox. So even that language is hard because if if they are different from we, then how can we really listen to one another? Do you, a great am I point. making sense? Yeah, so Alex is saying like already the language of us and them, we and they, we see it this way, they see it that way, that's already creating division. So I guess what I'm going to say, Alex, is that the division's already there. The division, according to Jewish tradition, is about position. It's not about they're fundamentally other than us. They are Americans. They are Israelis. They are Jews. They are whatever the we, there's always we, and there is always a we. Whoever we're talking about, there's a we. That's just human beings. That's how we are. There's my tribe, your tribe, my clan, my family. Like That's just who we are as human beings, as social beings. We are organized by us and thems. That's just how we are. Um, when we talk about somebody who has a different position, the Jewish tradition asks us to say exactly what you're saying, which is, because you have a different opinion for me and a fundamentally different understanding of what we should do based on our own inherited shared wisdom tradition is so different in our country, let's say the Constitution, we decide we have to go completely different ways. It doesn't mean you're them. It means you have a different position from me. And that's the work of being in here. That's why I want to do this. This is why I wanted to do this with you. Because we don't get enough of it out there, which is where we say we are defined by what the conclusions we come to are politically. That's where we are now, right? And then within Judaism, even politically, but, you know, but religiously, whatever. So we come to us and them. And what the tradition is asking us to do is to keep returning and returning and returning to the idea that, no, that's a different opinion. We're still one people. I don't care what they think. They don't have to agree, right? I, I don't care. That doesn't matter to me. What matters is who we are and who we become. And I can say that we want to cultivate for us the understanding that we can disagree and still be part of a, a nation. We can still be part of a people. We can still be allies, right? And, and, and participants in the Jewish project of Israel, the greatest project in 2,000 years um, of the Jewish people without having to agree. And that is something that is countercultural. And it's why we're going to keep rooting ourselves in a different way of approaching it because of exactly what you said, Alex. So thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, Jeff? Uh, I think this has really been a great session and it's moving me. And one of the words you came up with about 10 minutes ago was evolution. And that mm -hmm. really struck me that everything evolves. Uh, even mountain ranges, uh, animals, plants. And I'm going to use some 
symbolism here. I, I, I respect tradition, but they're roots and roots are roots change. And what comes at the end of a root is a tree or a flower. Things grow. The roots are there, but what comes up from the roots is maybe this is a way of looking at it. And as I said, we can respect the roots as tradition, but we must see that something comes out. Great. Thank you for that, Jeff. You can't see what I'm about to do, but just hold on. I'll say it out loud as I'm going to write for the group. So Mordecai Kaplan, the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism, said that Judaism is an evolving religious civilization. Yes, I heard you back there. Because that's it in a nutshell, people. Right there. This is Reconstructionism. Judaism is an evolving religious civilization. Mordecai Kaplan wasn't saying something radical or new. He was saying in our way of getting it, what what is right here? Right? In Perkid Rabbi Eliezer, what's right here in the Talmud? That it's evolving. It's a civilization. And it has a religious component. So we are here to explore a lot of different parts of that uh, civilization. It's it's not just, we're not here mostly about religious practice, obviously. We're here about, you know, kind of the philosophy, the approach, uh, and and grounding ourselves uh, in the text that will help us um, help us just be more familiar and be more exposed uh, more often to that way of looking at the world. So um, we will do together, uh, like I said, let's... <laughs> It's a big book. We have four units planned. Um, so this was the introductory class. We have three more. So we're going to do unit one uh, next time, uh, understanding Jewish peoplehood. So um, it, I cannot tell you how excited I am that we're learning together. And we have 40 screens at home. Um, and how exciting it is that there's this many of us ready to gather and have um, important conversations that hopefully can help us um, do the conversations we do out there differently and um, and feel a little fuller uh, as we do them. Maybe I'll just close reading David Hartman's text. If your tradition is based on learning, interpretation, and disagreements among scholars rather than on the absolute word of prophetic revelation, you cannot escape the haunting uncertainty of knowing that alternative ways are religiously viable and authentic. Become a religious person who can live with ambiguity, who can feel religious conviction and passion without the need for simplicity and absolute certainty. That is our work, people to become religious people who can do that.